If you would open your Bibles with me to Psalm 5, we continue our journey through the Psalms and explore some of the great truths that we find that can contain descriptions about who God is, that deal with the struggles that man has in his life and in understanding the Lord's work. We look at this rich and challenging psalm, and this is very simply titled, Praying Through Discouragement. And as you look at this in your Bible, you'll notice the superscription there that it says it's for the choir director, which indicates this was something to be sung. This was a part of the nation of Israel's musical liturgy. And to be honest with you, I don't know how you set a psalm like this to music, but they did. And it was very rich and very meaningful from them. You'll also note that it says for flute accompaniment. And the earlier manuscripts use the word neoloth, which is a woodwind instrument, which is much like an oboe. And the oboe in our culture has been called one of the most somber-sounding instruments that there is. It just has a way of communicating a very subdued attitude, a very heavy heart, and it communicates the tone that this psalm was written in, and likely as a part of David's life, it's attributed to him, and it can't track precisely when this psalm was written. It was either when he was fleeing from Saul, and in my opinion, more likely when he was fleeing from Absalom, and the scholars are truly divided on this. And there's a few subtle hints that you can see woven in here that really don't make a whole bunch of difference. To, who, to when the period it was written in. But it's some aspect of David's life, likely Absalom or Saul, that isn't going the way he wanted. And as I think about that and the application in our own lives, each of us can identify periods in our lives where things weren't going the way that we really wanted them to. We were so discouraged by our circumstances. There was such a feeling of insurmountable odds that we were up against, that we wondered, how am I ever going to get away from this? How will I ever overcome this? And will this ever end? And the reality is that when we face very difficult circumstances in our lives and we don't see the out, we can get incredibly discouraged. Sometimes it's our health. Uh, The diagnosis isn't good. And the outcome looks to be incredibly difficult and perhaps even painful. Sometimes it relates to marriage life. Uh, not married yet, and I really want to be married bad. I thought we were going to get married and the relationship has ended. Uh, we've got children and they're not doing the things that we want them to do and they're creating great stress for us and they're making decisions that frankly scare us to death. There's so many different ways and different reasons that we can become discouraged in our life. Unjust treatment, unfair criticism, unrealistic expectations that are just dumped upon us. And we just ask ourselves a question. Will this ever end? How is this ever going to end? And as we look at our passage of Scripture today, the circumstances that David faced are quite different from the circumstances that you and I are likely going to face, but the feelings are very much the same. So let's look at what Psalm 5 says. There's really five sections that we're going to look at in these 12 verses, and that third section is really the fulcrum that everything works off of, and there's some parallelism that takes place within this, and I think it'll make more sense as you go through your study notes. So let's read together in Psalm 5, beginning at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. My King and my God For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. 
In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. And the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you, for it is you who blesses the righteous man. O Lord, you surround me with favor as with a shield. Well, there's a lot in here, as you notice from your study notes. It's no blank space, not a lot of room to write your own notes. But this really lays out in a very simple way as we explore these verses. Our first section is David's call. David's call to the Lord is incredibly deep and intense. David's call, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. I'm going to approach this a little bit backwards. We're going to start in verse 3 and then go back up. So there's four things that we'll see about this call that David makes. The first one is this. David prays as a priority. David's prayer is, in the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. There isn't a coincidence that it's laid out this way. Now, even though there are prescribed times of prayer for the faithful Jew, I'm quite certain that not all Jews were faithful in praying in the morning. But David sets us very clear that his prayer is going to be a priority. In the morning, you will hear my voice. We have to recognize that in the face of great difficulty and discouragement, we need to go to the Lord in prayer in the morning. We need to set our day upright, knowing that it is the Lord that is our help. Secondly, we see this. David's prayer is expectant. He says, in the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. So this phrase of praying in the morning is repeated twice for emphasis as an indication of how serious David is in dealing with these issues that he faces. Now that phrase, order my prayer, order means to make an order, to request. And although this is a fairly loose and not really a great analogy, think of it like pulling up to the drive-thru and saying, yeah, I'd like to place an order. Well, you have this great expectation that when you order that food and pull up to the next window, it's going to be there. Now, this is not an invitation for us to pray whatever we want and expect God to deliver it to us. But David prayed with this expectancy. He made this request and he eagerly watched for the Lord to answer. It was an expectation that the Lord was going to give to him those things that David was asking for. Now... We need to be careful that we don't use this as a license to ask for any manner of thing and expect that God is obligated to give us those things. This request can't be pulled out of the context of the entire psalm. 
So David has made prayer a priority, and David is praying with great expectancy. Number three, we see that David's prayer is incredibly intense. It's more than just a prayer. There is an intense crying out that we see from David. He says in verses 1 and 2, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. When David says, give ear to my words, he's asking God to listen. Pretty low key, pretty normal. God, I want you to listen to my words. He says to consider the sounds that I am making. To consider is to discern. It is to give understanding. David is groaning. And that word in the Hebrew literally means to sigh. And it indicates that there is a deep concern. When you get this incredibly bad news and you know it's going to be difficult, it's not uncommon to take a deep breath. I don't know how I'm going to face this. I don't know what I'm going to do in light of this news that I've just gotten. And that's the idea here that we have from David, is that this intensity of the circumstance that he faces is so incredible that he doesn't have words to adequately express what it is he's trying to say. The hurt and the pain, the uncertainty, it's akin to what we read in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groanings that are too difficult to put into words. He's asking God to answer based upon His will, based upon His plans and His purposes, not just David's request. So when he's asking God to consider, it is to give discernment to, it is to understand my request, which diminishes the idea that David is just asking for whatever he wants and expects God to give it to him. The third thing that we see here is he's asking God to heed to give attention to the sound of my cry for help. This is not crying per se, but it is the crying out that is the result of overwhelming helplessness. Have you ever experienced helplessness? Have you ever been so far up against it that you recognize, I can't do anything about this. I have no power, I have no ability, I have no idea, I have no means to resolve this thing that I am up against. And when you feel that, in the depth of your being, you will cry out to something or to someone. And so here we see David who's asking God to listen, to give consideration to, and then to give attention to this incredible difficulty that he is facing. Fourthly, we see in this that David's prayer is dependent. He says, my king and my God, for to you I pray. This is the key in learning how to pray when we are discouraged. It is the necessity to recognize that our true and only help is going to come from the Lord, our God and our king. You're not going to find the answers in pop psychology. You're not going to find the answers in well-intentioned friends who have no clue what it is you're really going through, but hope to be able to offer some kind of help. Our only help is going to be found in the Lord. Now, He may use people. He may use wise counsel. He may use an encouraging friend. He may use people in the process of getting us 
to deal with our discouragement, but people never become a substitute for our crying out to the Lord and this expression of dependency upon the Lord to do what only God can do. Our union with Christ and the joy and the peace that comes as a result of this union with Christ is what is ultimately going to carry us through these periods of incredible discouragement. I wonder the last time you were really facing the difficulty, what did you do? To whom did you turn? What were your thoughts? What was the attitude of your heart? How did it grow you in your walk with the Lord? We will turn to something. And as we look at the model that David has for us, in the overwhelming overwhelming circumstance that he faced, he turned to the Lord, my God and my King. David prayed a prayer of absolute dependency, knowing that only God could ultimately deliver him. The second major section we look at here is David's confidence. Now, David's confidence is set against the backdrop of these overwhelming circumstances that he's facing, these intense feelings of discouragement. And up against that feeling and that discouragement is his confidence in the character of God. He is confident in the holiness of God. And what David does here is he describes kind of in a negative sense the holiness of God because God is so different from the enemies that David faces, those that are seeking to take his life. And it is in the description of this that we see the confidence that David has in the character of God. We know that God is holy and righteous and just. And I wonder when we're going through periods of mistreatment at no fault of our own, I wonder how that affects our opinion of or our belief in the holiness and the justness of God. Because God is holy, because he is righteous and just, David is confident in God's position with the enemies of David, who is the Lord's anointed, that phrase that is special and unique to the king of Israel. David knows that God is on his side. David knows that God is opposed to these enemies. David is absolutely confident in the holiness of God. These three verses are going to tell us about the wicked man and how God is opposed to them. So this expresses again in a backwards negative way seven truths about God. Number one, God hates evil. He hates evil. There is nothing about sin, there is nothing about evil and wickedness that exists in our world that God says, eh, you know, it's really not a big deal. God hates evil. Verse 4, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Now, the word wickedness there will mean, at least in our minds, that severe sin, that sin that is so far-reaching and so beyond our ability to understand how anybody could do such a thing. But we also have to remember that God hates sin. Wickedness seems to intensify the sinfulness of the individual, but what we need to recognize is that God takes no pleasure in wickedness. God takes no pleasure in sin. And what we also read in our Bibles is that sin is pleasurable for a season for us. There's things that we do, there's things that we think about, there's attitudes that we have, there's actions that we just aren't going to stop doing. And in that we say, I take a little bit of pleasure in this sin. I'm not willing to let go. I'm not going to draw a line in the sand and say, no more. 
But because God is holy and because God is righteous, he takes no pleasure in wickedness. God hates evil. Number two, God is holy. Verse four, no evil dwells with you. That word dwell means to sojourn or to abide. And when David states that, it means emphatically that there is not even the hint or the glimmer of sin or wickedness within the character of God. He is absolutely majestic. He is more than glorious. He is filled with splendor. We don't have words that can adequately express just how holy and righteous and just God truly is. He is so unlike us that there is not even a hint of evil that resides within the character of God. He doesn't do anything from bad motives. He doesn't withhold anything for ulterior motives. He is absolutely holy in every sense of the word. Number three, God rejects the proud. Verse 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. All of us struggle with some level of pride in our lives. It shows up in different areas and different intensities. We all have some pride in our life. But the proud are those who say, I don't need a God. I don't want a God. My life is just fine on my own. This whole God thing is nothing more than some kind of a psychological crutch to get you through your day. I want nothing to do with that. And this emphatically states that God rejects the proud because the proud will never bow their hearts before the Lord. They will continually reject Him, and the proud will not be able to stand before the glimpse or the glare of God's eyes. You know, there is that day when we will all stand before the Lord, and we will give an account of our life, and those who are outside of a relationship with God will not stand before Him. He will dismiss them for all of eternity. God rejects the proud. Number four, this is where it gets really difficult. God hates the wicked. Verse 5 also says that you hate all who do iniquity. You know, the commentators are surprisingly quiet about this verse. When you read this at face value, what does it actually say? It says that God hates all who do iniquity. Now, doing iniquity is not just committing a sin. Doing iniquity is a life that is dominated by, dictated by, and prioritized by living out a sinful life. We live in a culture today where you'll hear it thrown out all the time, God is love. God loves the sinner. He just doesn't love the sin. Well, there's a part of that that's true, but there's a part of that that isn't true as we understand verse 5. It says that God hates all who live a life of sin. He hates all who do iniquity. Martin Luther called this the terrible doctrine because nobody really wants to understand or deal with the reality that God hates those who live a life of sin. It does not mean that there is no room in God's grace. It does not mean that there isn't going to be a call of mercy upon that person's life. It doesn't mean that this person is forever cut off from knowing who the Lord is. It simply means that in our sinful position, in our sinful state, apart from Christ and apart from God, we're living a life of sin and God hates all who do iniquity. Number five, God will destroy liars. Verse six, you destroy those who speak 
falsehood. Now, this is really one of the interesting things about David's life as we look at the periods where he was running from Saul and where he was running from Absalom is that the enemies that David faced weren't outside of their nation. They were inside the nation. David was fighting an enemy from within. And there is this idea here that within the alleged community of Israel, there were those who were speaking falsehood about the king. David knows that those who live lives dominated and dictated by lying are those that are still trapped in their sin, and ultimately those will be destroyed. Do we forget that one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? Do you think it's a coincidence that that's in the Ten Commandments, and here we have David saying that you will destroy those who speak falsehood? When our lives are dominated by a life of lie and deceit, we need to be very certain that we do know this Lord, that we do love this Lord, that we truly are His child, if we are dominated by a lifestyle of lying. Number six, God despises murderers. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed. That word abhor seems to be even more intense than the word hatred. But the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed. You know, when I was reading that and thinking about that, even those who are murderers are not beyond the reach of the Lord's love and grace. If this was written during the time of David's fleeing from Saul... He was going to be guilty of murder at some point in his future. If this is written in the period of Absalom's rebellion, then David has already been guilty of murder. And it affirms to me that this God of love and grace can do far more in changing a life than we can even begin to imagine. Several thousand years later, the Apostle Paul, who sought to kill and imprison Christians all over the region was held responsible for the martyrdom of the early Christians. But God will, excuse me, God does despise these murderers, the men of bloodshed, but they are still not out of the reach of the gracious, merciful, loving arms of our God. Number seven, God despises deceivers. The Lord not only abhors the man of bloodshed, but he also abhors the man of deceit. When facing discouragement, when we're up against overwhelming circumstances, when we feel like there can't be an end to this, there seems to be no way out of this, we must remember that God is holy and righteous and sovereign and just. Nothing happens in our lives that God has not allowed or designed to bring about some spiritual good from us. When we feel like we're getting the short end of the stick, when we're being treated unfairly, when we're struggling with life-numbing circumstances that are not our own doing, we must find rest and comfort in the holiness and the righteousness of God. It is to Him that we pray, and it is in Him that we must continue to trust. I face some hardships in my life. As a mature Christian... And I've asked the questions, and I've uttered the phrases, God, why are you doing this? What are you doing in my life? I don't like this. This hurts. 
and I am really not responsible for this as far as I can tell. So when we utter those words, when we have that kind of an attitude in our heart, we're either going to stay there and become bitter and resentful towards God, or we're going to lay it at the foot of the cross and say, I trust you, I know you're holy, I know you're righteous, I know I'm safe in your love. What will we do when we face this kind of discouragement? Well, David had absolute confidence in the holiness of God. Number three, this is the fulcrum in our five-section layout, David's communion. So in contrast to the wicked man who despises the things of God and who despises God himself, in contrast to that, David takes great pleasure in the privilege of being in God's presence. David says in verse 7, But as for me, but as for me, I am not like them at all. I don't think like they think. I don't do like they do. I am not wicked like they are wicked. I have nothing in common with them. I do not despise you. I do not despise your ways. But I take great pleasure in your presence. He comes to the Lord in the morning. And what David is doing is he is celebrating his fellowship with God. I wonder how often we take for granted the reality that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. That we have been invited through the Word to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. And when we're facing these difficulties and these hardships and we don't know what we're going to do, we go through our day and God is barely a thought in our minds. Do we take great pleasure in this privilege that we have and having fellowship with God. Well, our fellowship with God is based upon His love. Our fellowship with God is not based upon God's righteousness. It's certainly not based on our righteousness. But fellowship with God is based upon God's love. David says in verse 7, By your abundant loving kindness... I will enter your house. Not only loving kindness, but abundant loving kindness. It's a love that is so great, it is so far-reaching, it is so complete, that it isn't just enough. It is abundantly more than enough that I could never ask for or hope for any more than you've already given to me. We have fellowship with God based upon God's love for us. It is His sovereign love of us. It is his sovereign choosing of us. It is his enabling us to know who he is. It is in his enabling us to even be able to choose him and to love him in return. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. God's love is the gateway to our fellowship with him. Not his righteousness, not his mercy per se, but by his love, God extends to us this door that we can have fellowship with him. This fellowship is based upon God's love, this communion. Number two, this fellowship requires our worship. We don't just sit and bask in the love of God. We worship him because of the way that God loves us. Verse 7 says, At your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. Now, in David's day, very different from ours, 
The indwelling of the Holy Spirit was not available. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place on the day of Pentecost. And so if you were going to be a faithful believer, you went to the temple to worship God. And when you arrived at the temple, you were to bow in reverence before the Lord. Our fellowship with God, because of His love, requires that we worship Him. There is this external worship that we participate in, where we arrive and we sing the songs and we might throw a few bucks in the plate, but there is also this internal worship of God, which is a life that is lived authentically in love for the Lord, a heart that is continually inclined towards Him and truly desires to honor And to please Him. I don't know about you. I've been around a lot of Christians in my day who at least to me appeared to be going through the motions of worshiping God. They arrived, they dressed well, they stood, and they muttered their lips as they looked around the room and observed all the people. I wonder if their hearts were truly bowed before the Lord in reverence. Our fellowship is based upon God's love. It requires us to worship Him. Thirdly, fellowship involves lordship. It's not just to enjoy God's love. It's not enough just to bow in reverence before Him. But there is this lordship that is to be lived out through our lives. Verse 8 reads, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. I really believe that this is what David is talking about, is lead me, God. I don't know which way to go. I don't want to go my own way. I want to know where you're leading me, and I want to be faithful to follow that. We would simply say, obeying the Lord. It is following Him and pursuing Him, submitting our will before Him, not living a self-directed life, but as much as we're able to do to live a God-directed life. Lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. You see, sin and evil and wickedness are all around us. There are many different paths that we can follow, but there's only one that leads to God. It's easy for us to get distracted by friends and even family members and even pop preachers who are going to tell us to do and to think certain things, believing that that's going to get us to an inside track with God. But we're just simply to obey the Lord's word and to follow him as much as we possibly can. It requires our lordship. We must be vigilant to stay on the right track. And if we're going to do that, you better believe, you better be praying. And we better be in God's word. We better be getting the truth straight from the horse's mouth so we can follow him in a way that enables us to see the path he's leading And to have the ability to live a life that brings glory and honor to Him. Sometimes our circumstances are the result of our own doing. Sometimes we have sinned, we have rebelled, we have neglected, and God brings circumstances into our life as a consequence for our actions. We haven't considered the truth of His Word. We haven't considered a God-directed life. We've just done our own thing. We've lived for ourselves. And we find ourselves up against incredibly difficult circumstances. Purposeful communion with God. Enjoying the fellowship with God. Worshiping Him. And committing to follow Him. Is the the way that we reverse those circumstances that we are up against. Doesn't mean they're automatically going to go away. But we will avoid repeating those things in the future. So that we can enjoy 
fellowship with him, and we can follow where God is leading. Now, sometimes our circumstances, as far as we can tell, are not our own doing. It's just life. It's just the effect of living in a sin-sick, sin-cursed world. When we're facing unjust treatment, when we're having to deal with overwhelming circumstances that we have not caused for ourselves, we still must commune with God. We still must be in His presence to meditate on His love, to worship Him with our whole hearts, and to recommit our lives to being lived out for Him regardless of our circumstances. And if we will do that, we will be able to pray our way through these periods of discouragement and come out stronger and more committed to the Lord in the end. This third section here is really the fulcrum of these five that we're looking at. David's communion, as he prays, as he deals with his enemies, and as we look at these next two sections, all hinges on his communion with the Lord. Now, number four, David's complaint. So in a similar tone to David's confidence in the holiness of God, in God's intolerance of the wicked, David now describes the conduct or the activity of these enemies that he is up against. Now, since David is the Lord's anointed, that unique position for the king of Israel, and is a representation of God to the nation of Israel, albeit a very fallible representation... David's enemies are considered the enemies of God because David represents God to the people. So David now describes the wicked. While this isn't a listing of specific or individual activities or actions, it describes their entire way of life. So here's how David describes the wicked, these internal enemies who are up against him. Number one, they are liars. Verse 9 says, there is nothing reliable in what they say. When they open their mouth, you can bet your bottom dollar it's not true. They're going to say all manner of things to get their way, to bring problems to my life. And as we've already seen, God hates those, excuse me, God will destroy those who are liars. Number two, their hearts are destructive. Verse 9 says, their inward part is destruction itself. That inward part refers to the heart of hearts, the internal being, the seat of man's mind and will and emotions. And David describes these enemies as destruction itself. There is no good thing that comes from them. Everything that they think, everything that they do, brings about destruction. Number three, their words bring death. Verse 9 says, Their throat is an open grave. The throat represents the place where speech would come forth. And that, that idea, that picture image of an open grave can't be any more significant and serious than it is. You think about an open grave filled with death. There's nothing good that comes out of that. Paul revisits the same kind of terminology in the book of Romans when he talks about the condition not only of the wicked but of man in general. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Their throats are like open graves. Everything that they say brings about death. Number four, their intention is deceit. Verse 9 says they flatter with their tongue. You've heard the phrase, he's a real smooth talker. He can make you believe just about anything. He could sell you a car that you don't want or you don't need because that guy has got a smooth tongue. 
That's the idea here, is that their intention is deceit because they flatter with their tongue. That's one of the ways they build a group of people up against David, is they say the things that those itching ears really, really want to hear. Number five, they are rebellious. Verse 10 says, Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. And that's really the the bottom line here. That is, the main issue is that these wicked people, these enemies of David, who stand opposed to the purposes of God, are rebellious against God. David knows the wicked have no standing before the Lord. David simply wants to see these enemies pay the penalty of their wrongdoing towards mankind and towards the God that they are rebelling against. He asks God to hold them guilty. He wants God to punish them for their wrongdoing. Whether it comes from the hand of God himself or whether it comes from the lives that they are living, David wants to see them punished because they are opposing the purposes of God. David does not delight in their punishment. David wants an end to this reign of wickedness that he is facing. The wicked cannot continue to live as if their way is blessed or condoned by the Lord. This is similar to what we would read in the New Testament where Paul would say, inside your church, you have this person who is externally worshiping the Lord, but he is an immoral brother. He needs to be expelled. Thrust out the immoral brother. That's the same kind of thing that David is saying here with the internal enemies who are opposed against God and who are standing up against David, the Lord's anointed. Have you ever felt that you've been attacked by the wicked, by those who oppose the person of God, the purposes of God? Have you ever been attacked by people who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they say all manner of things against you in an effort to bring misery to your life? Have you seen, have you had a desire to see the wicked get punished so that you can be spared from your, from their assault? I bet you have. I have. When we're discouraged at the hands of the wicked, we must must remember that not only is God aware, that God will deal with the wicked in his own time and in his own way. So here's what we want to do. We want to pair what takes place in the second section and David's confidence in who God is. And we see these things that we know are representative of the lives of the wicked that that are not a part of our lives. And as we think about those truths, it should be therapeutic for us to recognize, well, that's not who God is, and this isn't who I am, so I can rest in the truth that God is going to deal with this in his own time and in his own way. That ought to be able to give to us a measure of reprieve from the discouragement that we face. Number five, the last section we're going to look at, is David's celebration. As David began this with a prayer, and it hinges on his communion with God, David finishes now with a celebration. As David has described the wicked and wants to see them punished, he now describes and celebrates the blessings that are reserved for the righteous. David celebrates the righteousness of God, of which he would consider himself to be a recipient of God's righteousness. This celebration affirms that the righteousness of God 
in how he acts towards his people. Those who worship in spirit and in truth, those who are authentically giving their lives to the Lord, those true believers, these blessings are reserved for those who God considers to be his children. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. So in this verse 11, we see the same truth repeated twice, and it's said as a contrast against itself. So we see that God is our refuge, and God is our shelter. That is the position, that is the standing that the righteous have, that we are sheltered by. We can take refuge in the Lord, and as a result of that, God's people will rejoice, and they will praise Him. Well, wait a minute. You mean I'm supposed to rejoice and praise God when I'm facing these overwhelming overwhelming circumstances in my life? I can't see a way out. There doesn't seem to be an end to this. And I'm supposed to rejoice and praise the Lord? Oh, yes, you are. Make no mistake about it. It is in this rejoicing, it is in this act of praise and worship that I truly believe that God will free us from the discouragement that we face in our lives. As we think about who God is, and as we think about what God is and will do on our behalf, how can we not rejoice? How can we not sing for joy regardless of the difficulty that we face? Verse 12 says, For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. I'll be very honest with you. When I am going through very difficult times in my life, when I have been incredibly discouraged by my circumstances, I have not always felt the protection of the Lord. I felt like I am just open game. Everywhere I turn, I'm getting hit by something or someone else. And when we feel that way, we've got to come back to the truth about who God is. Are we really and truly confident and the holiness, and the righteousness of God. What will we do in those difficult times when it is not our instinct to turn to the Lord, but to turn to something else, probably ourselves? How will we ever get through these periods of discouragement if we don't find rest and peace in the Lord? Difficult times that bring about great discouragement will reveal how much or how little we truly trust the Lord. I can tell you my lowest points in my life, you wouldn't have seen a lot of faith. You would have seen a lot of uncertainty. And when we're in those periods, we can't stay there because that's not who we are. That's not what God is about. God is about conforming us to the image of His Son so that we can bring glory to His name and enjoy our relationship with Him. God truly is our shelter, even when it feels like He isn't. He is our protection. He is our refuge. And the question is, will we rejoice and praise Him through these difficult times? Or will we turn to something other than God? 
Would you bow with me in prayer? Well, Father, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. We thank you that nothing could ever separate us from that love. And Father, I know how easy it is to wonder about your love when we just feel like we're getting attacked at every turn. God, I pray as we think even now of discouragement in our own life, that you would just remind us of how great of a God you are, how faithful you are, how loving you are, how temporary this is, that one day we will be with you for all eternity. We will see you as you really are. And I pray that you would teach us to find rest and peace in you, knowing that we belong to you, that we are under your protection, that we can find refuge in you. God, would we cry out to you in a way that communicates our need and our dependency upon you? And would you strip us of our self-reliance and of our independence and draw us to yourself so that we can celebrate not only your blessing, but the great privilege of being able to be in fellowship with you. God, help us to understand and experience and commit ourselves to these things. For your glory and your honor, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.